welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some of your anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, experiencing a moderate amount of anxiety about being a therapist. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. Today, let's return to chapter three. Okay, the, the essence of the affect avoidance model is obviously affect avoidance. What's, what's good about that is that it gives us one way to explain all the kinds of problems that people bring to us in therapy, which there's a huge variety, but they all have in common that they start out as ways to avoid uncomfortable feelings. Who's doing that? It's, it's the instinctive uh, mammalian mind that abhors uncomfortable feelings and is designed to, to find ways to get around them. And so, so that's why we have dysfunctional behaviors, the kind that we can do something about in psychotherapy. But that's not the only thing that's good about the affect avoidance model. It doesn't just explain how people have problems, it also gives us a pathway to resolving them because what people need to do in order to get better is they need to face exactly those same feelings that they've been avoiding and go through those feelings. And when they do, there's a a healing transformation that takes place and we're no longer plagued by the need to do all all of those unhealthy things we do to avoid them. So it's not only an explanation, but also leads to a way to resolve these problems. There are many ways of doing this, uh, many different uh, theoretical models that can be applied. Can you tell me how would we make use of the different therapies? Well, you'll see as we go along in in the book that, that each of the different models has a different way of explaining, but they all really boil down to the same thing. Uh, For the the psychodynamic model, it's pretty simple because let's say intrapsychic conflict, what makes conflict problematic is that it generates uncomfortable feelings. If the superego says, don't do that, and the id says, yeah, I want to do that, either way you go, there's going to be an uncomfortable feeling. And so kinds of defenses that come up have to do with getting away from uncomfortable feelings. In cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a little more complicated. Cognitive behavioral therapy looks mostly at things people do, which in the end turn out to be ways of avoiding uncomfortable feelings. But CBT doesn't really recognize the feelings that much. And and that's one of the things that the affective avoidance model does is show you how emotion and cognition really come together, how they're, how they're related. We'll, we'll see more about that as we go. But in CBT, when you change your behavior or you change your thinking, you're really letting go of an avoidance mechanism. And what happens is uncomfortable emotions come up, which is why recent CBT literature is recognizing that there's resistance in CBT also, that pe- people have a hard time 
making changes. Why do they have a hard time making changes? Because it stirs up uncomfortable feelings. And then CBT doesn't really talk about it that much, but what happens in the sessions is patients go through those uncomfortable feelings, they get used to new ways of behaving and new ways of thinking, and their EDPs are resolved that way. So, so that's, those are two good examples of how the affect avoidance model is really a universal way of, of understanding problems and how they get and how people get better in therapy. There's a very interesting uh, schematic diagram that you include in chapter three of the entrenched dysfunctional pattern, the EDP, and I was wondering if you could maybe spend a little bit of time uh, talking about that. We're going to, even though this is a podcast and maybe you're driving your car and you can't really uh, look at a diagram, we're going to make a word picture to show you. Uh, so imagine a diagram and on the left hand side we have all the things that the instinctive mind is monitoring. It's monitoring what's going on outside and it's monitoring what goes on inside. It's even thinking about if there's a problem that comes up, it's even thinking about are you going to have the resources to be able to manage that problem? Because one of the strongest causes of anxiety, for example, is knowing that, that like this is what happened with Jack, the feeling that he wasn't going to have the resources to be able to manage becoming a new father and having a, a promotion at his work. So on the left side, we're monitoring all of the all of the conditions of life and what is that instinctive mind doing? It's looking for danger more than anything else. Yeah, it has an eye, eye out for opportunity and pleasure, but really danger is the, is the thing that evolution has taught our instinctive mind to be looking for. How do we know something is dangerous? Well, the way things get labeled as dangerous, the way they get tagged as, gen, as dangerous, is they get connected by neurons, neurons have connections, and a certain set of circumstances or a certain thing that's going on gets connected up with a negative feeling, with a core emotion. These are deep down emotions, the ones that are the same for humans and for other mammals, and those emotions are not always conscious, but they're very important, and when we really feel an emotion, when we have an affect with all of the the visceral sensations, the things that where we know this is a real feeling, that is a good sign that these core emotions are activated. So conditions that could represent a danger are tagged with a negative emotion such as anxiety, let's say. And that happens to be located in, in a structure mostly called the amygdala. But in any case, emotion is what triggers the dysfunctional reaction because Emotion is kind of at the center of this, of this diagram. These core emotions lead to a, some sort of strategy to uh, get rid of the uncomfortable feeling, to avoid uncomfortable affects. So now we're moving towards the right in our diagram. We go from the appraisal on the left where the brain does a lot of calculations and figures out whether something is dangerous or not. The dangers are tagged with an emotion, and then the next thing that happens is the mind, this is the unconscious mind, the instinctive 
self-protective mind. So, so far everything that you have described is happening on a non-conscious level. Absolutely, and okay. that goes with the fact that about 90% of the, of the thinking power of our brain works outside of consciousness. Okay, so now something is tagged as a potential danger, uh-oh. The instinctive mind then starts to calculate what can I do to get rid of that uncomfortable feeling? And it comes up with a number of different kinds of, of solution. The first one I'm going to mention is that the unconscious mind just does something. In other words, it just goes into a behavior. And that behavior, uh, like the panic attack, is an example of that. Something that was involuntary that just happened. Next, I'm, I'm going to talk about a number of things that the instinctive mind does that actually pop into consciousness. When our instinctive mind thinks that something is going to be good for us, then it has what I call helpers, a series of, of things that the mind does that influence our conscious voluntary decision-making. For example, one kind is an impulse. You have an impulse to eat that donut. Well, that's because your unconscious mind has detected that it's time to increase your blood sugar, and so it pops into your mind the idea that, gee, a donut would be pretty nice. That looks awfully tasty. So an impulse is one of those helpers. A second kind of helper is a spontaneous thought. I learned about this uh, from alcoholics who have spontaneous thoughts, and in CBT they call them automatic thoughts. In psychoanalysis, they call them free associations, but what they really are is they're the instinctive mind that is trying to influence our decision-making by giving us ideas, and sometimes those are rationalizations. Those are, these are all of the defenses that psychodynamic therapists talk about, the denial and things like that. They're ways that the instinctive mind tries to influence us so as to get us away from some uncomfortable feeling. Then there are a couple of other things that come into consciousness. Sometimes we get feelings, like for example, depression can be thought of as one other way that the instinctive mind maybe wants to save energy if there's, if there's trouble by putting us into a depression. Well, what pops into the conscious mind is, oh, I'm, I, I feel terrible, I'm not a very good person. And those things influence us to stay in bed instead of going out and, and meeting the world because our, our unconscious mind thinks that uh, lying in bed and saving energy is the thing that's going to lead to survival. That may not be true, but that's what the unconscious mind thinks. These helpers don't sound very helpful. Well, that's right, because we're talking about situations where the helpers are leading us in unhealthy directions. There are many, many helpers that do good things for us, for example, how do we maintain our weight on an even keel for year, year in and year out? Well, helpers tell us when we're hungry and when we're not hungry. It's a very effective system, or if we see some, some dangerous thing on the highway, we put on the brakes. Helpers give us suddenly an impulse to put on the brakes. can be very, very useful. There's one other kind of helper, which are visceral sensations. In other words, we might have, have a feeling in the pit of the stomach that says, uh-oh, this is, this is dangerous, and that's going to put us on alert 
and make us make us watch out. And so that's that's pretty much a list of the ways that the instinctive mind has of influencing our behavior so that we do we do the things that that it thinks we're supposed to do and many of those are dysfunctional they're EDPs. I do want to mention one other thing that the instinctive mind does that should be on this diagram and that is motivation. We have a really amazing motivational system that makes sure that we carry out the things that our instinctive mind thinks is, are good for us and that we carry them through to the end and that whole motivational system has been researched quite a bit recently and it's somewhat separate so we can think of EDPs not only as an idea of how to protect us from an uncomfortable feeling but also attached to those is the motivation to make sure that we actually do it. So when we're not going to do it, if we're going to change, then we're, we're going to be fighting our own motivation to a certain extent to, to do something different than our instinctive mind thinks is good for us. So using Jack as a model, how would you apply this, uh, the triggering perception, the non-conscious processing, and the conscious result in your treatment of Jack? Well, you know, as we said before, Jack is, is a little bit complicated because there are layers. There, is, there are several different EDPs with Jack. So if we start with the top layer, which is the panic attack that he has, when his instinctive mind thinks, uh-oh, I'm not going to have the resources to be able to be a dad and, a, and take a new job at the same time. And so the helper there, the mind takes that data, calculates that it's a danger, and, and then the mind uh, uh, comes up instinctively with this automatic uh, panic emotion that, that, uh, that floods Jack and leads him then to um, to stop doing what he's doing and, and tell his coworkers he's in trouble and they take him to the emergency room and so on. So, so that whole set of, of emotions and behaviors is, is an EDP. And it has the purpose of, it has the function that it gets him out of the uncomfortable situation, gets him into the emergency room and, and gets him some, some of the help that he can't ask for. Okay, that's the top level. And what, what triggers that top level? It's the feeling that the layer underneath isn't going to hold. It's like the dam is going to break. The layer underneath is the one that has to do with his value system. His value system is triggered by a feeling of neediness, which he's not even conscious of, because immediately his values kick in to say, that is shameful, you shouldn't need anything, you shouldn't need anybody else. You should be able to handle everything on your own. And so that value system will punish him with, with feelings of shame if he, if he even dares to think that, that he has needs. And so that's, that's a layer underneath that, um, but that's the one that when it threatens to fail, that triggers the, the top layer, the, uh, the panic attack. So then underneath that, underneath the value system, there's yet another layer, which is probably got formed way, way earlier, very early in his life when he would go to mom and he'd say, you know, maybe he'd whine or complain and want attention. 
and instead of attention he'd get get out of here don't bother me I'm busy and that was very painful what would he do with that painful feeling well he tries to not ask he tries to suppress his neediness but it's pretty hard to do that when you're a little kid when you have needs it's just going to come out and that when that layer threatens to fail that's when the values come in that's when the shame comes in to punish him for for daring to seek attention so that's a brief example with three layers of the instinctive mind's systems for avoiding uncomfortable feelings. So we've, you've identified Jack's helpers, which are no longer helpful to him. How do you um, change the fundamental values of this rugged individualism with which he was raised? which in fact is a helper, but how do you get him to overcome, or how do you help him overcome the shame that he may feel for needing help? Well, you're certainly right to ask that question because that's one of the tougher things in psychotherapy. And I don't think it's often recognized that changing people's values is probably the most difficult thing that we do. And my answer is throw the kitchen sink at it, that we do everything we know, we educate, we encourage, we help people not to feel shame when they shouldn't. But that's a very hard thing. And there's a whole chapter later on in the book about when, when values are not healthy, uh, how do we change those and how do we keep them changed? Because that's one of the things where the, the healing is mostly not permanent. It's something that we have to keep on working at throughout life. And that's a really tough challenge. For example, the other day I was working with somebody who's really a dyed-in-the-wool tough guy. He, he admires the Marines, and he's working on becoming a therapist himself. Well, he's going to need to change his tough guy values, and uh, for him to do that is quite upsetting because he's very afraid. He says it out loud. He says, well, if I'm not a super tough guy and if I don't put a high value on uh, not succumbing to emotions and, and, and on suppressing my emotions, then, um, then I'm going to be a weak person I'm, and weakness is terrible. And I'm saying, you know, human beings are weak. That's, that's how we are and we're going to have to appreciate that weakness is, part, weakness is part of life. That's pretty hard for him to do and yet he wants to become a good therapist and he knows that he's going to have to change his values in order to get there. So really the challenge is one is about meeting resistance. Right. One of the kinds of uncomfortable feelings that cause EDPs is the therapy itself because what we're doing in therapy is we're inviting our patient, our client, to let go of some mechanisms that they've been holding on to that the instinctive mind thinks are protecting them from dangerous, uncomfortable feelings. And we're saying, why don't you let go of that shame that's protecting you from the neediness that you're not supposed to have? Why don't you go ahead and show me some neediness? And the instinctive mind gets very upset about that and it comes up with some sort of strategy for resisting some sort of strategy for not having to make those changes 
So, so resistance is, is just super important and it's kind of a basic fact of life in therapy. Why is that? Well, as therapists, what we're doing is we're inviting our patient to let go of some EDP, some mechanism, maybe an unhealthy one, but a mechanism that the instinctive mind thinks is protecting them from something bad. And so, so we're, we're asking the instinctive mind to let go of a cherished protection. And what's the instinctive mind going to do? Well, it's going to try to find a, a new strategy to resist the action of the therapy. So whatever we do in therapy is, is seen by the instinctive mind as a threat. So it's very natural for patients, clients, not consciously, but unconsciously, to resist the action of the therapy, to resist letting go of those, those affect-avoiding behaviors that we call EDPs. So earlier in the podcast, you spoke a bit about CBT as, as a way of addressing uh, the EDPs, uh, the entrenched dysfunctional patterns, and, um, and now applying CBT to resistance in the therapy room I can think of traditional talking therapy uh, as another way of doing it, which you just exemplified. Um, you mentioned also the third wave of therapies, of experiential therapies. Could you talk a little bit more about that, please? Sure. Where cognitive behavioral therapy really didn't know quite what to do with emotion. And yet, in the last 20, 30 years, uh, quite a few people, like uh, like Les Greenberg with uh, emotion-focused therapy, and Stephen Hayes with ACT and and DBT. All of these letters are about therapies that recognize the importance of emotion. And with a lot of a lot of clients, you're just not going to get anywhere unless you're ready to deal with intense, very uncomfortable emotions that come out in the course of therapy. So those third wave therapies are all start with ways to address really, really intense, uh, difficult feelings that come up in the process of therapy. And you can't just sit back and say, well, let's check out your cognitions here um, with somebody who is, is falling apart in front of you. So that's kind of where they fit in. But I'll make some sense out of, out of all of this with the idea that therapy is sort of circular. What do I mean by that? Well, if we think that an EDP starts with uncomfortable emotion and then goes to a behavior, sometimes in therapy, we're working with the behavior, or the, the thinking. We're trying to help the patient let go of an avoidant behavior. When they do, what happens? Well, they feel an uncomfortable emotion. So then we help them deal with that uncomfortable emotion and and heal it so that it's no longer so troublesome. Well, what happens when we help somebody let go of a, or get comfortable with what used to be a very uncomfortable emotion? Well, then they're able to change their behavior and behave in healthier ways. So if we start with the emotion, it leads to change in behavior. If we start with thinking and behavior, it leads to change in emotion. Either way, sometimes we go one way, sometimes we go the other way but we're going back and forth between emotion and behavior. And that's the, you know, DBT stands for dialectical behavior therapy. And dialectical means back and forth from one thing to the other. Well, back and forth between changing cognitions 
and changing feelings. Right, an elegant model, really. Um, so, putting it all together, the affect avoidance model unifies different therapies by focusing on change processes. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, methods from different therapies can be chosen pragmatically and put to work in a cyclical alternation between emotional healing and behavior change. Right. I'll, I'll, just to finish up, I'll tell you how it's changed my way of doing therapy. I was taught originally to do therapy by following a method and then expecting somehow if you do the method, then the patient's going to get better. That didn't really satisfy me all that much and that's what led me to spend most of my career trying to understand exactly how people do change and how therapy works. So what's happened is now I'm less focused on the technique. I still use the same techniques I did when I started. I'm less focused on them and more focused on exactly what change process is going on. Am I helping somebody let go of a behavior that's covering up a feeling? Am I helping them to face a feeling that's uncomfortable to face? Am I working to help bring a feeling up to the surface where, where they can work with it? So I call it process empowerment. Now that I'm more conscious of the process, and that's what I hope in these podcasts to help other therapists to become, as I'm more focused on the process, then I think I'm a better therapist, and I think that, that it's really kind of changed my, my approach to it, and I'm more precise about what I'm doing, and more in touch with the minute-to-minute -minute action that's going on than I used to be. All right. Well, this concludes today's podcast. And okay, very good. Uh, well, and we'll go on from here. Thank, thank you for you. listening to the end. Okay. Bye-bye.